All right, so today we are starting uh, a new series. Uh, it's a seven-week study in the Gospel of John. It's called Restoring Broken Signposts. And it's based on a book that is by one of my favorite authors, N.T. Wright. Any N.T. Wright fans out there, folks that have read N.T. Wright, if you have not read anything by N.T. Wright, I really encourage you to do it. He's, he's one of my favorite theologians, authors, pastors. He just has uh, so much to say. In this book, he wrote a book that's actually called Broken Signposts, and uh, the book is serving as like a framework for the series, but it's such an accessible book, and he's such a deep thinker, but he writes in a way that really is accessible, and so uh, I would just encourage you, uh, it's called Broken Signposts, and uh, you go to Amazon, go wherever you grab your books and, uh, and get that book. If you get it and you read it, along with the sermon series, uh, it, it's going to allow you to go to a whole nother level in terms of um, kind of understanding and what God wants to teach us and teach you during this time. There's just stuff that he deals with that we just, in a message on the weekend, just cannot deal with all the things that he is dealing with and all the ways that we're going to be exploring John. He goes into even further depth in the gospel of John. Now, Wright focuses on seven signposts. or I, The way that I tend to think of them is seven longings, seven signposts that point to what it means to be fully human. And the seven signposts are this, a longing for justice, a longing for love, a longing for power, a longing for beauty, a longing for freedom, a longing for truth, and a longing for spirituality. And, and it's not just like followers of Jesus that have these longings, that these are longings that are embedded in the heart of every single human being on the face of the planet. They are longings that are in every human heart. That every human heart has this longing for justice. Every human heart has this longing for truth. Every human heart has this longing for spirituality. Some, something going on that is beyond themselves. Like everyone has this longing. And, and oftentimes they can't connect it to something beyond themselves. To, to, to God, to the message of the gospel. But the longing is there and it's pointing, it's a signpost that is pointing to something beyond themselves. But even though we long for these things, and this is kind of the irony of the whole, even though we long for justice, we long for love, we long for power, we long for beauty, we long for freedom, even though we, we long for these things, we never quite get it right as humanity. Like we never quite get it right. Love turns selfish. Justice gets denied. Beauty is defaced. Freedom is taken. Truth is skewed. Power is abused. Spirituality often turns inward and becomes self-absorbed. In other words, the signposts are broken. And the deal is that we know they're broken. We sense they're broken. There's something down deep inside it. We know they are broken. There's an awareness deep within our heart and within the heart of every human being that this is not the way, that what we are experiencing in the world is not the way that it ought to be. We're just not sure how to fix it. 
We're just not sure how to repair it. And so what we're going to do in this series, we're going to look at these seven signposts through the lens of the gospel of John. Because John reminds us what God has done, is doing, and will do in the future to restore these broken signposts and to put everything right. And today, we're focusing on this issue of justice. And John reminds us of four very important things about justice. First is this. He reminds us that we often distort the very justice that we long for. Like there's this longing within our heart for justice, but that we often distort the very justice that our heart longs for. We all know that justice matters, but oftentimes we find it nearly impossible to actually achieve it. That no matter how hard we strive to live up to the ideal, we fail. Oftentimes we fail in ways that create actually more injustice. We we distort justice for our own selfish purpose. Kind of the history of the world is that we distort justice for our own selfish purpose. We see that in the story that John tells at the beginning of chapter 8. It's an incredibly familiar story. Probably most of you are familiar with it. Uh, let me just jump right in. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people were gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, who were always kind of hovering around Jesus when he taught, brought a woman caught in adultery. I, I, I don't know how that happens. Caught, caught, caught in the midst of adultery. Where were these guys? Like, who knows? But caught in adultery. And then they shame her, like, like visually, they, they make her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. Like that's what the law of Moses says. Now, what do you say? And they're using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger and, and in, the, in the dirt. And it doesn't actually say how long, but it's just like it, the, the, the text goes on to say, and they kept accusing and Jesus kept writing. So he's just like writing and writing and writing and writing and writing. And when they kept questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at this woman. And again, he stooped down, started writing again in the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones, the old guys first, and then the rest until Jesus was left with the woman standing there. And Jesus then straightened up and he asked her, Woman, like, where? Where are they? Where are the people that condemned you? No one, no one is there, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. There's so many interesting aspects to this story. 
so many things that we could go into that we don't have the time to go into today. First of all, it's just like, where's the guy? Like, where is the guy? Like, you can't be caught in the act of adultery by yourself. Like, it does not work that way. There had to be a man there committing adultery as well. And where is he? Like, where is the guy? Why isn't he there? Like, that's actually part of the injustice of the story. And then there's this question. Like, what is Jesus writing in the dirt? And there's like all kinds of theories about that. Some have suggested that that's exactly what he was writing. Where's the guy? 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 And others have suggested that he was, he was writing down the, the sins of everyone who was standing there. And after writing all of those sins down, then with all of them on the ground there, he turns to them and says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Well, we don't really know. Maybe he was writing that. Maybe he was writing something else. We don't know. The bigger question is this. What does justice actually look like in this situation? Like, were the teachers of the law and the Pharisees actually pursuing justice in this moment? Or were they distorting justice in this moment? And based on Jesus' reaction to them, it's the latter. That they were distorting just, justice in this moment. They were manipulating the situation. They were manipulating the woman. They were manipulating the circumstances in an attempt not so much to accuse her. They really don't care about accusing her. They are manipulating the moment and the situation and manipulating this moment in order to accuse Jesus. That's the one they want to accuse. They were testing Jesus. Will he or will he not uphold the law of Moses? If he condemns her, it seems to fly in the face of his message of of forgiveness and love and grace. And if he does not condemn her, it appears that Jesus is not serious about justice. He doesn't really care about justice. But as Jesus so often does, he, he turns the table on them. I love this. I love the way that it's like a judo thing that Jesus like oftentimes does in conversations. And he, he turns the table on them. And, and he turns the table on them by saying, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first one to throw the stone at her. In other words, Jesus is now, they were accusing him. Jesus is now accusing them. And he's accusing them of both sin and hypocrisy. And they, they know it. And, and that's, the way, that's, that's why that one by one, they just begin to slink away. Just like, and, and, it, and it's interesting uh, that, it, and, and it's interesting that John notes this, that it's the, as they slink away, as they walk away, as they're humiliated, that it's the old guys that leave first. And we, we don't know for sure why it's the old guys that leave first, but they've had a lot longer to sin, right? 
So like if, if there is like, I'm being called out for where I have failed, like they've got a, a much longer track record than the younger guys here. So they all begin to leave. And when those who had their own sin, this is what's so interesting about the story. When those who had their own sin to deal with, when they don't condemn her, then the one person who has no sin, the one person who could justly condemn her, turns to her and says, neither do I condemn you. I'm setting you free. I'm setting you free. I'm setting you free to turn away from your life of sin, to turn away from this stuff. I'm setting you free, and I'm setting you free to live a different kind of life. That's, that's, what, that's what Jesus does when he, when he does not condemn, <laughs> is that like, it's not just about forgiveness. It is also about being set free. Like when Jesus doesn't condemn us, it sets us free. It sets us free to live a different kind of life, to, to go in a different kind of trajectory, to, to, to go in a different direction than we have been going before. And that's what he does here, is he sets her free. Maybe some of you are walking in condemnation for, um, for something that you have done or for something that you have said. And perhaps, like with this woman, it, it deserves condemnation. Like, it's not that it doesn't deserve condemnation. It deserves condemnation. It, it was hurtful. It was, it was wrong. Like, you shouldn't have done it. You, you shouldn't have said it. Uh, it was a decision. It was a temptation that you gave into. It was a decision that you made that you should not have made, that, that people were hurt because of what you did or people were hurt because of what you said. Like it is, it deserves condemnation. And maybe there are some people in your life who in fact are condemning you for it. Or, or maybe it's like the person who is condemning you the most is you. Like you are the one who is beating yourself up for it. You are the one who is condemning yourself. But I just want to remind you today that the only person who can justly condemn you is Jesus. And Jesus is the one who says to you the same thing he said to this woman. I am not in this moment offering you condemnation. I am offering you forgiveness. I am setting you free to go a different direction, to live a different kind of life, to turn away from the thing that you did that was so hurtful. The one who is the only one who has the right to justly condemn you says, I condemn you not. Now you would think, you would think that after this humiliating experience, 
that those who are trying to accuse Jesus of, those who are distorting justice for their own, their own selfish purposes and the humiliation that they experienced and like being called out and having to slink away and all that, like you would think after that humiliating experience that they would stop doing what they're doing, that they would stop accusing Jesus, but that's not what happens. Like they actually, in the Gospel of John, and you read it in all the other Gospels as well, they actually ramp up their accusations. They accuse him of all sorts of things, including being demon-possessed. They, they accuse Jesus of being possessed by a demon, which leads to the second thing that John reminds us of. He reminds us that there is another accuser behind all of the accusations. There is another accuser behind all of the accusations. He says in John 8, you belong to your father. He's talking now to the people who accuse him. He says, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native, native language. That's quite an interesting statement. That his native, like everyone has a native language. Like everyone has like the, the first language that they learn. Like that's your native language. You may learn five other languages, but you have a native language. He's saying that the native language of the deceiver is lies. Like that is his native tongue. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, there are certain verses that we read in the Bible that when we read them, they make us feel really, really uncomfortable. And, and so usually we sometimes avoid them, or we read past them very fast, or we certainly hope that no one preaches on them. And like, this is probably one of those verses. Like, it, it, it's just an uncomfortable, the phraseology. And that phrase, that phrase, you belong, he's talking to now these, these leaders, he's these, these church leaders, religious leaders, others that are part of the group that are accusing him, he's, he, he says to them, you belong to your father, the devil. Now, first of all, I would just encourage you to avoid dropping that phrase on someone, okay? Like, I don't think that's a phrase that would be wise. Let's put it that way. Uh, might be true, but that it would not be wise to put that in a text to someone, an email to someone, post it in social media, or send a direct message to someone saying, you know what, I just figured it out. Your father is the devil, and you are doing the devil's desire. Just probably not the way to kind of engage someone. There's a lot of context that's needed to really understand what Jesus is saying. And, and here's, here's the essence of what he's saying and why what he's saying is actually something somewhat different than what we, than what we think. The term devil points back to the Hebrew term uh, ha-satan, uh, the accuser, ha-satan, the accuser. And what Jesus is actually saying to all of his accusers, and it's interesting, he's saying to all the people that are accusing him, he's saying, I know that you're not the real accusers here. I know that you're not the real enemy here. I know that you're not the real adversary here. 
What, what Jesus is giving us here is perspective, a really important perspective on the pursuit of justice and the fight against injustice. He is reminding us that this battle against injustice, this battle against justice, is not ultimately won or lost at the human level, that there are other powers at work, powers that go beyond particular individuals, powers that go beyond particular groups, powers that go beyond particular political parties, powers that go beyond all of that. And if we begin to see people as the enemy, if we begin to see a particular person as the enemy, if we begin to see a particular group as the enemy, if we begin to see a particular political party as the enemy, then our mindset becomes, if I can only beat this person, if I can over, only overcome this group, if I can only beat this political party, if we can only win here, then we will win the victory. And Jesus is saying that is not the There is another enemy, the real enemy that must be defeated. In John 12, the, the real enemy, the real adversary, the real accuser is revealed. Look at what he says. Now is the time of judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world, talking about hey, Satan, now the prince of this world will be driven out. When I am lifted up from the earth, talking about his crucifixion, when he dies on the cross, will draw all people to myself. The prince of this world now stands condemned. Jesus says that the the prince of this world is the real culprit here. That, that the prince of this world is the dark power behind the evil and the death that has defaced and corrupted God's good world. If John, if John were a spy thriller, I, I love spy thrillers. I love movies that are spy thriller movies. Donna loves movies that are spy thriller movies. We, we watch those. And, and if John's gospel were a spy thriller movie, like this would be the moment in the movie where, where you find out who the, the real bad guy is. Like that's what's so great about a spy thriller is that you think you know who the bad guy is. And the hero of the movie is going after the bad guy. And, and you think you know who the bad guy is. And then you get to the end of the movie and all of a sudden it's revealed like who the real bad guy is. And, and it all depends on the movie, right? But like in some movies, it's like you get to the end of the movie and the hero has been like working, you know, to get the bad guy and all of that. And then you, and then you find out that the real bad guy is his boss. <laughs> and it's like, oh, you know, and it's just like, Oh, you know, it's just like, oh, the person who he thought was helping him is actually, there was corruption at the top, right, above him. And, and, uh, and you go, oh, wow, this is like the culprit, the real culprit is revealed. Or you get to the end of the movie and, and you find out, that, you know, these two folks have been working to find the bad guy. And, and then the, the one hero finds out that the real bad guy is his best friend who's been working with him all along. Oh, 
You know, it's like this moment, you know, like, oh, that's the real culprit. And uh, I, I also, Donna doesn't like these. I like the British crime uh, shows. Does anyone watch British crime shows? They're like, yeah, thank you. Be proud. Okay. So, and I love them. And they usually have like twists in that too. And really, really good acting. And, uh, and in one of those, uh, it went through like all the, all the episodes of the season. And you get to the final episode and you find out that the, that the, the culprit is actually, who's committed the murders and all that, the culprit is actually the, the spouse of the police officer who's looking for the murder. Like it's his wife, you know, who's committed the murders. Like, oh, you know, just like, wow, just like, oh, wow, that's the culprit. If if John were like a spy novel or a British crime, like that would be like this moment where Jesus is saying, this, this is the real culprit. You thought it was this. You thought it was this. You fought against this. You thought it was this. You thought this is the real culprit. Jesus is pulling back the curtain and saying, this is the one that must be defeated. If justice is going to be done, and the world is going to be rescued, this is the real source of wickedness that stands behind the betrayal. You know, you think about all the things that happen, right? All of the culprits. Think about all of the culprits in the narrative of Jesus' crucifixion. And what Jesus is saying here is he's reminding us that the, the real culprit behind, the real source of wickedness that stands behind the betrayal of Judas, the real culprit that stands behind the, the plotting of the, the chief priests in the trial, the real culprit that stands behind the cynicism of the Roman governor, the real culprit that stands behind all injustice and wickedness in the world is this Hesatan. That this is the real culprit. Which leads to the third thing that John reminds us of. He reminds us that the accuser has already been defeated. Can I get an amen for that? Like the accuser has already been defeated. The culprit has already been identified and has been defeated. In chapters 18 through 20 of John, John unpacks the story about how the accuser is defeated and justice is secured. And on the surface, as you look through the narrative and read the narrative, on the surface, it doesn't look good. Jesus is put on trial. Not, not this culprit, not the accuser, Jesus is put on trial. And witnesses line up to give their testimony, not against this culprit, but against Jesus. And, and people plot, not this, not this culprit, not the accuser's demise, people plot Jesus' demise. And justice is grotesquely distorted. And in the end, Jesus is identified as the real villain. And then he's brutally crucified on a cross. But John says that it's in that moment 
that seems like all is lost in that moment that seems like once again, justice has been perverted. Once again, justice has been distorted. Once again, the powers of evil win over the powers of good. Once again, everything, everything is lost. John says it's actually in that moment that is the moment of victory. It's the moment when the accuser is identified and dealt with. Because it's in that moment that Jesus, the sinless one, takes upon himself the judgment of all of the injustices, all of the sin, all of the brokenness, all of the evil of this world, past, present, and future. And in that moment, justice is secured. In the crucifixion, we see the God of the universe invading this world, the God of the universe invading this world where we all want justice, but oftentimes justice does not happen. This world where injustice oftentimes wins. This world where bullies and, and those who have power and levers to pull oftentimes do what they want and get away with it. We see God invading this world at the cross. We see God invading this world, not just to announce his justice, not just to say his justice is coming, but to actually embody, embody his justice. And the resurrection declares that this new justice has already arrived. Justice is all about creation being restored. It's about everything being made right. It's about a world where death itself is no more. And even though that has not happened yet in all of its fullness, the resurrection declares that this new world, this new justice, this new world is here. It's in our midst it's all around us. The new has broken into the middle of history in the midst of the old. The new has broken in to the old, which leads to the fourth thing that John reminds us of. He reminds us that we are called as followers of Jesus. We are called to be justice bringers. That's a, that's a term that N.T. Wright uses, but I love that term. So I just said, I'm just going to leave that term in. I love that term, justice bringers. Now, what is a justice bringer? A justice bringer makes God's victory over injustice, makes it visible, <laughs> allows the world to see it. In other words, those who follow Jesus are commissioned by God and empowered by God's Holy Spirit to bring hope-giving justice for a world where injustice so often still reigns. Jesus says in John 20, as he, he's, he's been crucified, buried, has risen from the grave, has met with his disciples, is getting ready to go back to be with the Father, and they are to carry on this mission. And this is what he says to them. He says, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me now. Now I'm sending you. In other words, Jesus is saying that he has accomplished what he was sent by the Father 
to do. He has secured justice. He has secured the justice that we all long for. He has secured the justice that every human heart desires. He has secured that justice by what he has done on the cross and through his resurrection. And now he is sending us into the world as justice bringers. Being a justice bringer is not just about waiting around until Jesus returns and and makes things right. I I have to say, I, I grew up in a church that at times leaned in the direction where we got the first part of this so right. The first part of this is that we know who the enemy is we know, we know who the one is that w- needs to be defeated. And we know that Jesus defeated the enemy on the cross. And, and we celebrated it and sang songs about it and professed it and confessed it. And all of that. We got all of that right. But what we did not get right at times is that there was this sense of now. What we do is just kind of wait, wait wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Someday Jesus will return and make all of this right. And that is true, that Jesus will one day return and make all of this right and we will see everything set right in all of its wholeness. But in the meantime, he has called us to be justice bringers. He has called us to make visible, make visible the justice, the justice that he has secured on the cross. He'd make it visible by confronting injustice with a new kind of justice that is rooted in Jesus' sacrificial love, a new kind of justice that is not imposed simply by power and Levers that are pulled and, and, and manipulation of people, but a justice that is secured and rooted in Jesus' sacrificial love. It's giving the world a glimpse in the moment of what is to come in the future. It's bringing heaven, bringing heaven to earth. It, it's living out Jesus' prayer that God's kingdom would come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Today we're going to take communion. And uh, communion celebrates um, so many things. But I was thinking as I was preparing for this weekend and us taking communion and talking about justice is how communion so leans into that and celebrates that and reminds us of that. Because when we take communion, it not only declares that Jesus, what Jesus has done to defeat justice once and for all, like every time we take communion, we take the bread, we take the cup, and we are reminded this is what Jesus did. This is why he did it. This is what Jesus did to defeat injustice in this world. And as we take the bread and we take the cup, not only does it remind us of what Jesus did to defeat injustice, it also declares that that we have joined the mission. 
Every time we take communion, we take the bread, we take the cup, it's not only a declaration of what Jesus has done, it is our declaration that we have joined with Jesus on this mission. That we too are a part of the justice pursuit that Jesus came to this earth to die for. It declares that we will work for justice. It declares that when we see things that are not right, when we see things that are wrong, when we see things that ought not be, that we will respond and bring justice to the midst of those situations. It declares that we have become justice bringers. In a moment, the worship team is going to come out. We're going to sing together. Our ushers are going to come forward. They're going to uh, pass out the, the communion elements. And um, for some of you today, perhaps um, in taking communion, this will be, maybe will represent the first time that you have actually personally said yes to the forgiveness and the grace, the no condemnation that Jesus offers you by dying for you on the cross. And so maybe you've taken communion before, maybe you've never taken communion, and, but today you take it and today it means something different because today you're saying, I'm taking this and I am saying yes, maybe for the first time, to God's forgiveness and to his grace. And then I just want to say a word to those of you that you feel free if you uh, feel like you shouldn't, don't want to take communion today, you know, don't feel pressured to take communion. The tray is going to be passed and you can take it and pass it on or you can just pass it on like that's entirely up to you. But it, here, here's just what I want to say. If you, if you, if you don't partake or you feel like you shouldn't partake, don't have it be because you had a bad morning or you had a bad week or you had, a, you had a bad month or you feel distant from God or something has happened that has shaken your faith in some way and, and you don't feel close to him and so you know okay I'm, I'm not going to take communion today because I don't I don't feel really close to God I feel uh, because the very thing that you are taking is the reminder that God invites you to the table and into his presence in spite of all of those things. The very thing that you are taking is a reminder that God's grace covers all of those things. So he invites you, every one of you, he invites you to the table. God, we're overwhelmed by what you have done what you have done, what you are doing, what you will do that brings justice into this world that has taken our 
sin upon your shoulders and and justly provided for us. And as we take communion today, as we worship and then as we pause and together take communion, Lord, may we sense your presence with us today. In the name of Jesus, amen.